This episode of Designed by Architectural Record is sponsored by Vitro Architectural Glass, continually advancing how buildings look and perform. According to recent studies, Vitro Glass, formerly PPG Glass, is one of the industry's most respected glass manufacturers and responsible for many of the industry's most specified products, including high-performance solar band solar control, low-E glasses, and Starfire Ultra Clear Glass. Explore products and request curated sample kits at vitroglazing.com. One more time, that's vitro, V-I-T-R-O, glazing.com. The office has always been rooted in diversity, and I think that's one of the, the most fantastic aspects of the office that we try and, and keep balanced all the time. Is we're always working in different geographies at different scales, doing different pro uh, programs, different building types for different clients. And I think that variety really allows us to, to be able to go from one to the next and really look at the unique conditions and the parameters of each site. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Designed, an architecture podcast. We appreciate you listening, and once you're finished, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, rate us, and leave a comment. Enjoy the show, and have a wonderful day. Hello, all you beautiful people. Welcome back to another episode of Designed with me, your host, Aaron Prenz. As always, I just want to start by saying thank you for all of you out there for listening to the podcast, referring your friends to the podcast, all the reviews on the iTunes review section. Uh, it's really great, and I appreciate all of you. We do have our new website up now. It's designedpodcast.com. has everything from episodes. You can stream the podcast straight from the website. It also has links to all of our social media, iTunes, Google Play, all the links you need to really enjoy the podcast. So go check it out. And of course, be sure to follow us on Instagram at designed.podcast for everything we have coming up because we have some really great interviews. We have Ginny Wu, we have Morphosis, even Boston Dynamics. We're talking robots. Uh, just a lot of really great stuff coming up. So be sure to check it out. And this week's episode is Chris Mulvey of Softy Architects. Uh, really great conversation. It's a cool guy to sit down and talk with. He's actually heading up the Raffle City Chongqing project. It's about to wrap up here in China. We also talk about some stuff from Crystal Bridges in Arkansas and him moving to China. So without further ado, sit back, relax, enjoy. Here we go with Chris Mulvey. Softy Architects is known for doing just kind of a lot of really creative projects. They had Habitat 67, the jewel that just opened in Singapore. And now they're coming up on the completion of Raffle City Chongqing, which is going to open in 2020 in China. And it's this concept of a vertical city. And I think it's just a really interesting project. Could you take us through kind of that design process, the conception of this idea, and really what were you all trying to accomplish with the design? I think it's an interesting question, and I think it's an interesting evolution for us. You know, a lot of people and sort of the media and journalists point towards maybe Marina Bay Sands as being one of the first sky parks or sort of one of the more pronounced or prominent ones. And it was the first to have that sort of name or sort of nomenclature, but for us, you know, Habitat 67 really had the first sky park in some respects is that it was at an individual level of trying to bring people's backyards and gardens up in the sky and give everyone that as an amenity. But there were also the pedestrian streets that brought people from one apartment to the next. Those were sort of elevated and outdoors. And so I think this notion of, of trying to find ways to bring humane living environments in sort of areas where there's density and increased density has something that's always been of interest to motion and, and of interest to the firm. I would say the, the, the genesis of, of the Sky Park in Marina Bay Sands and the conservatory, which is sort of a glass enclosed variation in Chongqing, were both very much responses to the site. In Singapore, the client, the Las Vegas Sands, had an incredible amount of program that needed to fit on a relatively small site. 
you know, the hotel couldn't sit above the casino or the convention center or the theaters. It just didn't work structurally or programmatically. And so by the time we deployed all the program area across the project, there was very little site area. And so where we normally put the pool and the garden and the parks, sort of at the base of the hotel or on a podium, that space wasn't available. And so Moshe said, look, let's, let's put it where it sort of wants to go and where it can go. And that's sort of what gave rise to the Sky Park going across the tops of the towers. I think Chongqing was very different. I think they're both similar in the respect that they have multiple towers that were able to deal with it once. And so it's, it's not a building typology, it's an urban typology. And I think it allows us, you know, like Rockefeller Center, is, is when you have more than one building, what does that mean and what can you do? And so in Chongqing, it was very, very different. It was, look, we want to take this density and push this to the perimeter of the site, push the towers to the perimeter, because we want to create a fantastic public space, a public garden on the roof of the podium, because in this part of the city, the densest part of the city, and probably the densest city in China, they didn't have that type of a space. And so we thought by pushing this to the perimeter, we're going to give everyone a position on the ground or the roof of the podium of a park. And therefore, some of the program that we're trying to create, we're going to do that in the sky. We're going to elevate that. And it's sort of this bustling street in the sky. And, you know, in Singapore, again, it's the hotel functions. But in Chongqing, it's a public observatory. It's a private club, residential club. It's the hotel lobby. It's two restaurants. It's a cafe and sort of an overlook over the rivers. And so it's much more programmatically diverse. And so for us, it's not only formally and conceptually is it a different, it's the next generation. From a programmatic standpoint, it's also quite interesting to sort of look at how much can you push that in terms of the typology? Well, I think that's an interesting point that it's the world's highest sky bridge. How much of this is just doing cool stuff just to do cool stuff? We're trying to develop, and you know, Moshe's been doing this for 50 years. He's been trying to develop ways to sort of mitigate scale and sort of break down scale of buildings. And, you know, I think that's what Habitat was. It was fractalizing the apartment tower, the apartment building to try and create individuality and sort of a sense of, you know, individual ownership and location within a broader complex. And as we get faced in, in doing that in more and more dense areas, particularly in Asia, where we've been working a lot over the last 10 or 12 years, it's just a much more significant problem. And it's probably one of the most critical problems facing architects and, and urban designers today is how do you deal with the scale? One way is, is to try and move people and move the public just off the ground plane give them the experience of being at those different levels and breaking down the scale both programmatically and, and, and visually. So I, I think there's some similarity, of course, between the projects, but programmatically and conceptually, they're different, but they're also very much related to their location. And so I think we're fortunate in that sense to have products located on sites and with clients who are adventuresome that we can sort of explore these ideas and continue to explore these ideas. And, you know, in some locations they're relevant, in some locations they're not. So I think, you know, there was a, a good deal of time between Marina Bay Sands and, and Chongqing, 10 years or so at least, where we didn't get to explore those types of things. And we looked at other ways of addressing these same issues, whether it was in residential projects or sort of other areas like, like in Jewel, which were, you know, we're trying to look at the same issues, but the nature of that project and the nature of the site and the program don't allow for that. They allow for innovation in another area, but not necessarily this. So I think what we're trying to do really is, is sort of advance the discourse, create those types of spaces that are memorable places for, for people in the city, and really try to look at the intersection between uh, urbanism and architecture. So real quickly, can you take our audience through just where you grew up, what your parents did, the economics of the household, and out of all the things you could have done in life, why the heck architecture? I'd say it's a, maybe a pretty average, <laughs> average growing up. I, I was born in New Haven, in Connecticut. My father worked for Sears Roebuck. 
no longer Sears Roebuck. And he was a district manager, so we would move around every two or three years when we were little, mostly through Connecticut, but then a bit through New York. He would move to open up a, a new store or oversee a store. So he was more on the business side of things that I think, you know, I learned a lot from him that I didn't realize until much, much later. My mother was a nurse. She worked in the emergency room at Yale New Haven. And as we moved, she sort of continued to work there, so she commuted a lot. So, you know, for a lot of the growing up, both parents worked. And so my brother, younger brother and I dealt with sort of, you know, two parents who had sort of very important careers, very professional careers, and, and kept them out of the house quite a lot. But, and I think this is sort of where it made the path for me, is, you know, my mother and my mother's mother were, were into painting and were into art. And I think sort of that was always sort of an outlet, a way to connect. And I think, again, my father, the connection was more about sports. And again, that came back to me and my kids. But, you know, I learned a lot from a business perspective from him that I really appreciated much later after I got out of school and as, as I started the career here. In terms of the path, I hadn't planned on architecture at all. I was very much into illustration and my target, my plan was to go to RISD for illustration. We went to go visit the school and I really liked Rhode Island, really liked Providence. I fell in love with the school, but during the tour, I sort of stumbled into the architecture studio. And there it was people seemingly doing similar things in terms of, you know, an art background or a creative background, but we're doing it with much more mixed media in terms of models and drawings and large scales and different, different media. I was really drawn to that. And so I, I sort of had gotten settled on Rhode Island and, and Providence. And so we started looking at that area and ultimately decided on Roger Williams University, which is about 30 minutes sort of outside of Providence and Bristol. I chose that school because it was a younger faculty at that point. A lot of them were there when the school started 25 or 30 years earlier, but they were all practicing architects, or most of them were practicing architects. Uh, and some of the other schools I looked at had more of an academic background or sort of the, the faculty were more academics rather than practicing architects. And because to me it was about that craft, I was very much interested in learning from those who were still actively practicing. And so that's sort of what led, to, led me to, to that that area, I guess. Well, you started at Softy Architects as an intern. You know now that you're upper management, how many applications you guys get a day or how many portfolios from young architects. What specifically do you think you were doing at that time that really kind of caught the eye of the hiring manager and said, hey, we want Chris to come work for us? I was working for a professor who used to work at the office. And she had passed, unbeknownst to me, she had passed by my CV onto one of the principals who was here, Isaac Franco, who actually started as an intern working at um, Habitat 40 years earlier, 35 years earlier, uh, and he brought me in for an interview. It was as an internship for the summer, right after I graduated Roger Williams and as I was starting at MIT. So I worked two summers sort of as an intern, and then he made an offer for me to stay after I graduated full-time. But it was more circumstance. And again, it was, you know, as, as most of us tend to do in school, we were sort of moonlighting for two professors, uh, working on a small residential projects with them. And, they knew that there was an opening here or knew that there was you know, always need for interns. We, we still do have quite a lot come in every summer and thought it would be a good fit after having worked with me and sort of been, been my advisor through school. So I was very fortunate in that, in that respect. Well, I think a lot of people also, though, you've worked on a variety of high profile projects that you could probably easily say, like, you know, I'm going to go out and start my own firm. I have connections. People know me. My portfolio is great. What is it that kind of keeps you at Softy Architects? I think, you know, People, or at least sort of in my observation after being here for a while, I think people join the office to have the experience of working directly with Moshe. 
And I think that comes whether you're an intern or whether you're a principal. I think he's very accessible. He works on all the projects. He's, he's the lead designer for all the projects we undertake. But he works with, a, you know, when I came initially, he was working with a very close group of principals who had been with him for a very long period of time. Anywhere from 15 to 30 years, I think, at that point. And so people join for that reason. People join, I think, because of the type of projects we get to do and we're fortunate enough to do. But I think people stay, or at least I stay, because of the collegiality. And I think it's a very open office. Uh, it's very non-hierarchical. Uh, I think we're, we're sort of very horizontal in that respect. That creates a lot of opportunities for younger architects to sort of really rise very quickly and take on a lot of responsibility and get exposed to a, a wide array of things. And, you know, aside from the architectural projects and the urban projects, you know, Moshe continues in the firm, you know, the other principals, we still lecture quite widely and we're doing a lot of publications and exhibitions. And so you get exposed to a lot of facets of, of the practice, which to me, every few years, I was able to move into a slightly different role within the office and experience all of that. And, you know, by and large, there were, there were three or four of us who came in within the same summer, same year as each other. We're all still here, so we've all been practicing not only with each other, but alongside Moshe for 20, 25 years. And I think we've sort of developed as that next core group of principals sort of working with him and, and sort of supporting and directing the office. Well, you've also, you've worked on a, in a variety of places from Arkansas, Crystal Bridges, which is, by the way, a dope museum. Like, it's, it's the most random thing. They have Andy Warhol's to a Frank Lloyd Wright house, and it's in the middle of the woods in Arkansas. So I think it's a really great project. It was a groundbreaking project, I think, for us in terms of really changing what a museum can be in terms of the architectural experience. But I think the client and, and the museum and the director and the team there, you know, working under Miss Walton, they've taken it even further. And, you know, the programming that they do and how they use the grounds and the trails and the events they do in public outreach, I think they've also changed the nature of the institution in terms of what it is for a museum and what that can mean for the community. And so, I mean, it's, it's just a phenomenal place to spend a weekend. Well, you went from Arkansas to China to Singapore. You've really been exposed to a number of different cultures. So uh, I guess how does that exposure really not only influence your design, but also des your design thinking? That, that's always been what the office has done. I think, you know, Moshe began in, in Montreal with Habitat, but then he moved the office to Cambridge, to Somerville, because he came to teach at, at, at Harvard at the GSD. We had an office in, in Jerusalem because of his upbringing and, and, you know, work that we were doing there. And we ended up being based in Boston, I think, because that's where his, he rooted himself and rooted his family and, and decided to build the practice. But the majority of our work is not in Boston. The majority of our work is international. And again, I think it's, we, we all support and really appreciate, I think, Moshe's general approach of what, what we try and do as architects is really put ourselves in the place of the people who are going to use that building. So that's not only a programmatic issue in terms of what is, what is someone who comes to a library, what do they want to be able to do and achieve, and, and what's that experience for them, and how can be a, be a wonderful place to share knowledge and experience knowledge, but that person is also from a certain area, and, and a library in Salt Lake is very different from a library in Vancouver, and a library in Vancouver is very different from a museum in India, and so I think the, the office has always been rooted in diversity. And I think that's one of the, the most fantastic aspects of the office that we try and, and keep balanced all the time is we're always working in different geographies at different scales, doing different progr uh, programs, different building types for different clients. And I think that variety really allows us to, to be able to go from one to the next and really look at the unique conditions and the, the parameters of each site. A few years ago, maybe longer, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, we were working with an 
curator in New York, Donald Albrecht, that put together a retrospective of the office's work. He and Moshe spent a lot of time trying to think of how do we organize everything. And yes, it can be chronological, but it could also be geographic, and it could be by, by typology. And, and what's the theme? And I thought Donald came up with a very apt way of describing Moshe as a global citizen. In the sense, is it's, it's this person who has not only the ability, but the interest to really draw from and represent local culture and local aspirations. And I think that's one of the, you know, the first principles that we operate in as an office is we don't start work on a product until we've gone to the site, until we spend time in the city, spend time in the location, and really understood the specifics, not only of, of geography and, and climate, but the nuances of the site and what the site has to offer. And, and I think that becomes the basis by which we start we start our work. And I think he, he outlined these premises, and I think those who have stayed and continue to practice here have all upheld those and believe that those, quote-unquote, first principles are what guides our work. And I think those are the things that are common from project to project, whereas they're, you know, in the absence of a, an aesthetic style or an approach or a formal approach that doesn't govern our work, these first principles are the things that we really try and strive for, and that's sort of what ties everything together. And I think there's something very nice about that. Well, with all that said, when you're a firm like Softy Architects, when you go in for a project, you're, you're going against some of the top firms in the world. So real quickly, can you just put our audience in the room for that pitch and just Really, what makes the client say, hey, we want Softy Architects? It's really a question for the client, <laughs> and not to try and sort of excuse myself, but, you know, there are a number of firms who, who, you know, we consider peers to us in some respects, but in some respects, we're very different. We tend to be a much more compact studio uh, in terms of size than a lot of those that we tend to compete against. And I think that's just, you know, we operate very differently. I think we're, we're very hands-on, you know, all the principles who are on projects are on projects 75, 85% of their time uh, is billable on a project and they're hands-on building models, doing the drawings, building the three-dimensional models and really directing the team because we're fortunate enough to, to have a lot of interest in the firm in terms of people come to us for work. So we don't necessarily have to spend a lot of our time on that side of things. You know, every client's different. Some are fond of the fact that there is no signature style to our work. Some clients sort of that makes them a bit nervous. They're not sure what they're going to get. You know, if they select this architect or that architect, there may be an understanding if they're going to approach things in a similar way that they have in the past, and, and there's some comfort in that. We don't have that. So I think for us, when we know it's a good fit in terms of the client and us together for the project, there's an alignment of values or an alignment of ideals. And I think you know we 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 present our our work and, and when we explain our work. We talk about it much more so in terms of the ideals and what we're trying to achieve. And I think the clients then need to see if that's a good fit for them or not. Often we do find ourselves in the room, as you said, with the same group or a similar group or a variation. Uh, and different clients choose for different reasons. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, they need to feel that it's a good fit for them. Uh, we need to feel that it's a good fit for us. I think in terms of, you know, we're going to have a very intimate working relationship with them, spending time in, in their office or on their site, they're going to be spending time with us in Boston. And so I think both sides need to feel comfortable that it's a good match. You mentioned earlier and on in the conversation about the sort of business sense that you developed. You lead the firm's business management and operations and global practice. I think business is a lot of times, especially for young architects, they think it's there's this mentality that, you know, you have good design and you're going to be successful, but I think a large part of that is how you manage the business side of things. So can you talk about just kind of the importance of that to you and how that impacts the company as a whole? I think you're right. I think there's a tendency that 
those growing up in the profession may not see the business side as quote unquote design per se, or sort of as a, as a design effort or a creative effort. And therefore it tends to either get relegated or sort of marginalized a little bit. But, you know, as you said, if, if, if you can't be sustainable in terms of your operations, you're not going to have the opportunity again to come back and do more good design. And, you know, what we, we, we do believe if you do good work, you will get good work. You know, that, that's been demonstrated through us. But what, what I've really learned to understand is, is the business side of the practice it's obviously integral to the ability for us to apply our trade, right? I think, and it, and it, it, it goes over everything. It's, it's ensuring that we have an appropriate and, the, and adequate fees to be able to explore the design to the extent that we would want to and, and develop the documents to the certain level that are going to need to be built in this area. You know, that changes from the level of documentation that's needed in Singapore, which things are done as a design-build approach is very different from India, it's very different from the U.S. And sort of understanding that and understanding that there's this context there, it's then you have to come up with a creative and sort of designed response. And I think a big turning point for me was, was working with the firm's previous managing principal and realizing that the business side of things, while, while maybe dealing with different uh, types of issues, they're not tasks, and if they're treated as tasks in terms of discrete tasks, then it's just more calculation than it's accounting or it's bookkeeping, and that's not what business side is about it's really about you know being very creative in how we approach things how we deploy resources why do you put this person on that project instead of this one because it's going to give them a different development path and a career path and so i'm within the office that's my primary role is that is overseeing the, the business side and the operational side but you know like i mentioned before we're a collective and i work very closely with the other members of this sort of core group of principles where we sort of you know, we involve each other in these types of discussions and we seek counsel from each other and advice. And a lot of these things, you know, I'll spend more time on that than they will, but you know, we'll, we'll table it for discussion. And, and a lot of this is sort of done as a collective. And then we have clear assignments and clear responsibilities in terms of which of us sort of operates in different aspects of the firm. But I think being able to deal with that and have those sort of more business side discussions have that be actively done with the other designers and principals and project managers, I think allows us to sort of see things sort of a little, a little differently. I'm, I'm still involved in projects, you know, not, not full-time, not to the same degree as I was 10 years ago, but those who are primarily involved in design, you know, are also consulted and involved on the non-project discussions about the office. And I think that, that adds a lot of strength and sort of provides multiple perspectives that help us and help me sort of make those governance level decisions. I had a conversation with Art Gensler and he was saying that he wants to create, he wanted to create a business that would go on forever. You mentioned earlier that Moja has been at it for 50 years. He's the lead designer on every project. And when you work for a company that's branded around him, Softy Architects, his last name is in the title. And we see that now with Zaha and the whole Patrick Schumacher lawsuit thing that's going on. As a leader of the firm, how do you go about, do you guys have a transition plan? Any firm has to deal with it in some respects at some point. Moshe has brought together, uh, sort of through addition, you know, over time in terms of people to support him and support the office. We've also then formed our own relationships, sort of as a group, as, as a group of leaders. I think that's very much sort of how, how we operate now. From a technical perspective, we're partners in the business. Uh, and that was the change Moshe made about 10 years ago to bring some of us on. And, and what gives us sort of confidence is, is, again, that group we've all been practicing together for 20 years. Uh, and we understand and have worked together as partners and as partners with Motion. So from our perspective, we're all here because we believe in a lot of the same things about what's important for architecture, why we're doing this, what's the importance for the city, for the individual, for the public. 
And I think you know those those principles and those sort of ideals were all in alignment. And again, the fact that those ideals and, and principles get uh, deployed or get you know addressed different ways and different projects in different contexts, we don't have some of the same issues maybe that a firm that is built around someone who has a very distinct style, a very distinct aesthetic, that in the future they'd be looking to either replicate or, or divorce from. We don't have that. We have a set of ideals that we have all believed in and have helped shape over the years and will continue to evolve. And that's sort of how we apply our trade. That's how we sort of approach architecture. What's your proudest sure. moment in architecture? I have three kids, so it's kind of like asking which is the favorite. I, I don't know that there's one moment. I think there's a string of moments. And I think it's sort of, it's, you know, it's, it's the path, you know, the first competition that you won that you were in charge of, you know, that you were really the person working directly with motion and, and sort of helping assemble the team. And, you know, we were successful and, and there's, you know, there's pride there. Crystal Bridges was an incredibly proud moment because it was the first project that I worked on almost from concept the majority of the way through. And to see something like that come to fruition and be built is another sort of milestone moment in an architecture. We do a lot of work that doesn't get built. We meaning the profession, you know, architects in general, our office too. A lot of work doesn't get built, but it's buildable. And I think there's a difference there. We're, we're always trying to build work and achieve work. And we're, we're not an office that takes on projects and limit our scope to concept design or schematic, and then we sort of take a back seat. You know, if we can't have people on site under construction, we won't take the project on. I think we want to see projects through, we sort of want to see them executed and sort of, and, and the design intent is maintained. And so seeing the project built was, I think, a fantastic moment. You know, moving, moving to China in 2011 and, and opening our office there and going through all of that, looking back, that was an incredibly proud thing to be able to do of, of not only going there and, and learning how do you do business in China, how do you open a business, how do you deal with staffing and recruiting and accounting, it's creating a startup there. To then come back and being the role I am now, it's you now more take pride actually in, in the work of others. And you, you know, you assemble the team, and then you see the team achieve something. And I think there's pride there as well, too. And I think now, I think there's a lot of pride looking back at the work that we've been opening over the last year in terms of Jewel, which I wasn't involved in, but you know, I was obviously working on other things in the office that helped support that team. But we've been open a year, and I think it's it's obviously been very warmly embraced by by Singapore and by the airport, and, and I think just by the public at large, I think, in terms of traveling there. And so, yeah, we were there a few weeks ago for the ceremonial opening. One of my colleagues, Jaron, got married there, which was sort of a, a nice celebration for the office to, to be able to participate in that, not only for him, but for him to be one of the designers that worked on the project from the start with Moshe, for, for him to be able to celebrate that there. So again, I mean, I think as you as you grow and mature, you sort of take pride in different things. And so now it's, it's looking back and seeing what the office as a whole has achieved. And, we have a string of projects opening from last year through next year that I think are, are really going to be quite fantastic. And so, you know, you go through these periods of time where the scale of the work that we do is large. And so therefore, you know, a lot of the time frames associated, they take a long time. Chongqing will take eight years. You know, Jewel was a quick five years and Marina Bay Sands was five years. Uh, so, but they take a long period of time and they tend to, at least for now, we're coming to this crescendo where we have quite a lot of things coming to, to completion in the next year or so, which I think is going to be an exciting, proud time for the office. On the flip side, what's your biggest setback in your career and how did you use it to motivate yourself to get to where you are today? That's maybe a more difficult question. Again, I, I don't know that I can point to anything specific in terms of a setback. I mean, you lose a competition, but we're all going to lose competitions and you know did we lose it because they they preferred a different approach or did we lose it because we didn't do our best work you know and, and 
Usually it's not that. I think we're, we're always very proud of what we do and feel more strong about that. And so, you know, those can be sort of minor setbacks. I think what creates setbacks is maybe the bigger issue. I think that, that people and, and, and young architects should be thinking about is you need to sort of see challenges and, and maybe if things are not going the right way or if it's an obstacle, changes in life, changes in the office. You, you need to sort of see that as a, as a chance to pivot and as a chance to grow. And I think if you don't notice that, if you don't take the time to be aware of it and look at it that way, that's the setback. But the fact that you're allowing these things to create a big setback for you. And so for me, it was, uh, I mentioned before, I, I've sort of moved through the office in, in, a, in a series of different roles of, you know, the first five or seven or eight years was mostly on competitions, mostly on projects, uh, on the front end side of projects and didn't have a chance to see things through. Crystal Bridges was that sort of one exception, but then my wife and I, we decided to start a family and she was pregnant with triplets, which <laughs> created its own sort of obstacle. So I knew, you know, at least at the beginning of that, you know, when we we're starting a family, I wouldn't be able to have the same role I had in the office. I mean, it wasn't that I couldn't put in the same amount of hours as I needed to, but I needed to be on a very different schedule. And so I had to shift my role to something within the office that I could focus more on communications and business development and writing and editing and things that I could do on, a, on, on more of a one-to-one -one basis or more prepare and then bring to review and, and I could have a slightly different schedule. And so that worked out very well for me. And I, but I had to recognize that and pivot it and it could have been a big setback. But you know, I was sort of a designer at that point, but I wasn't able to sort of work to the same commitment within the office with the team uh, that a design role really needs to have in terms of being there day to day to lead the team. And then a few years later, the kids were three and a half we decided we needed to send someone to China to open an office because the work we were doing was getting to the point of construction and we wanted to be there. We wanted to sort of be hands-on and we don't open office and markets to try and go after work. We open up a site office to make sure that that work can get executed well. And, and again, we sort of looked at that and I spoke with my wife and you know, we saw that to be a tremendous opportunity to, to go and take the family to China for a year or two. And the plan was to go for 18 months and see the construction. And, you know, we thought it was a fantastic opportunity. And again, it could have been a setback. It brought me out of a role here, but into a different role. And then we get there and three months later, we win this project in Chongqing. So I knew it wasn't going to be a year. It wasn't going to be 18 months. It ended up being five and a half, which was a fantastic period of time. And then again, circumstance changed, things changed in the office in Boston. And I came back here to the role I'm, I'm currently in. And so each of those things, if I had my mind set on what my role was going to be and deterministic about that, each of those could have been a setback, I think, uh, would have been a setback, but recognize that you have a plan in place and you have a trajectory, but you need to be aware of what's going on in the context and the staff changes, the office changes, the projects change, life change, and to be able to stop and, and recognize all of that and be aware of that and see the opportunities and use all those to pivot and grow on your life path. I think that's a really important thing to be able to do. And obviously we all work incredibly hard and, and there's a lot of intensity and, and, and pressure. It's difficult to stop and step back and take those sort of assessment, take stock, see how things are working and, and you know, recheck the system and uh, system check. Uh, but I think those things are really quite important to do. And I think if you don't do them consciously, time's going to go by very fast. And I think then you'll look back and you'll see things as setbacks rather than opportunities. What advice would you have for the young architect that wants to go on and have the type of career that you've had? I think, you know, we talked a bit before about clients and architects and firms sort of needing to be in alignment in terms of to be able to produce a good project. You have to have ideals that resonate with the client and they have to believe in. As you're starting out, you, you, you have to find 
in office that has values that you believe in, that you believe deeply in, uh, that align with your values or help, help you understand what your values are. For us, we, we, we tend to invest very heavily in internships. Like I said, we're, we're a compact office, maybe we're 80 people in Boston, but we'll probably bring six or eight or maybe even more interns every summer, as well as sort of work-study interns during the semester to try and, one, I think they just contribute to the culture of the office and the excitement of the office, but you know, we want to expose them to how we work and you know, we're lucky if one or two of that group come back the next summer and decide to join us after they complete their education. That's a good path for us and I think we, we found uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good path for them to help really understand what they want to do. So we have to find an office that has a strong culture, that the environment of the office, you know, both professionally and physically, the space that you're in, is conducive to, to working in the manner that you want to work. If it's, if it's a collegial manner, if it's, if it's this, if it's that, you know, one's no better than the other, but to sort of understand what you want to do and how you work and what's an environment that's supportive and conducive to that. And, you know, you have to test it. I, I was very fortunate that the faculty that I was working for knew me enough at that point to think this was a good fit. And, and I came here and, you know, Isaac thought it was a good enough fit to bring me back. And I thought it was a good enough fit to stay in, you know, and, and it worked. But I think those who come and work in one place for 20 years is much less the norm now. Uh, and I think it's good and it's bad. Those who are starting out, you, you, you do want to try different offices and they help you sort of find your way. I think you, you, have, you just have to be very aware of all those things when you're sort of looking and evaluating it. You know, for us, those who do well here usually come through recommendation. We get a lot of, we do get a lot of applicants and, and we still bring in a lot of people that way, but the ones who sort of seem to be the best either have some connection to the office or someone's worked here before or this person knows that person and because it's really about the fit. I mean, you know, obviously we're going to get candidates and, and architects coming out of school or coming from other offices that have the skills to be able to work, you know, at the level that we do. But it's a, it's a question of whether the fit's there, whether it's the right cultural fit. If that's there, everything else will sort of find its way and come along. But I mean, that's, that's difficult to force for a long period of time. Last question. What's next for Softy Architects? The immediate next for us is, is Chongqing, where we're looking forward to... You know, like I said, that was a project that was started in 2011. It was through a competition that the government held. It was a developer competition, which was us working with Capital Land. We've done four, four projects with, or four buildings with, and a number of other competitions or studies. So that's, you know, that's eight years for us looking back. And so it's begun to be open. I think the retail podium, the gallerias were opened a few months ago. The conservatory that we spoke about before will be opening probably in January, hopefully right before Chinese New Year, some bit after. And so I think the next immediate thing for us is to be able to see that and appreciate that and, and step back and, and for the office to go visit that project and, and really see there, you know, connect with our colleagues in China and whatnot in a few years. But beyond that, I think what we're always looking for to do next is something we haven't done. Working in a geography or sort of in a climate or in a country that we haven't worked with before. Uh, because, you know, we're interested in learning more about that culture, more about that geography, more about building types. We really sort of immerse ourselves in learning uh, a new typology and really sort of see what we can learn from it and also how we can contribute to it. And, you know, we're not a specialist firm, you know, we're a generalist approach. And, you know, specialists have incredible knowledge, but they have incredible knowledge and I think they can make maybe incremental sort of advancement. I think if we're coming at it a bit fresh and looking at a typology for the first time, 
what we've done with museums and, and libraries and the integrated resort and, and some mixed use projects, I think we've made some significant advancements, I think, in the typologies. And I think part of that is because we've come at it a bit fresh and come out of it with, without having necessarily the baggage of what comes with the typology. So next for us, it'd be great to do a, a science building or a, a stadium, you know, something we haven't done yet, I think. We, we want to try and balance the, the work that we're doing and with, with something something new for us. So that's what we're sort of looking out for. Well, Chris um, Mulvey, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. This was an awesome conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. And uh, thanks a lot, man. Thank you for listening to an episode of Designed, an architecture podcast. We'd appreciate you taking a moment to subscribe to us, rate us, and leave us a comment. Have a wonderful day.